Today on Ag News Daily. More than any of the technical things that you've learned, agricultural science, animal science, whatever it may be, um, the thing that has helped us here a lot is learning how to be flexible. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, I had to think about what day it was there for a second because this has felt like the longest shortened week of my life. I feel ya. I mean, yesterday I told you that I had to make sure that it was actually Thursday and that was really my only full day of work and I'm still exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, moving is a tough, uh, tough job. It it definitely pulls it out of you. Oh, for sure. I am glad that I'm all moved in, but I just want to take a nap. In fact, you know, I think I might do that after we get the podcast done. Well, hey, no, no, uh, no worries there. I would too, if I were you. See, that's my favorite thing about working from home is that I can (laughs) lounge around whenever I want to. That's true. You can. Yeah. You're not clocked in. You just take a little nap. Well, Delaney, other than taking naps, there really isn't anything that I'm doing or have on my schedule today other than talking about some news, which was kind of slow today. So even then I don't have too much to talk about, but I want to kick things off talking about a new port that is opening over in your neck of the woods, Delaney. I don't know if you've heard about this. I assume you have heard a little bit, but a new farmer financed port is open along the Missouri River in Iowa. A 4,700-member cooperative based in Fort Dodge has invested in the newly constructed barge loading and unloading terminal at its site near Blencoe, Iowa, making it the most northern port on the Missouri River. Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition was at the ribbon cutting yesterday with Governor Reynolds and Iowa Ag Secretary. Steenhook said that the facility will accommodate 240,000 tons of soybeans, corn, DDGs, dry fertilizers, and more each year, both incoming and outgoing. And he also said that we have seen some increased volumes moved on the Missouri River as of late. The Missouri River is never going to rival the Mississippi River in terms of volume of freight accommodated, but we think it is an underutilized asset and we think it should be more widely available. So this new barge is going to be available to people for transportation. And so I, I, I guess that's a good thing. I suppose it is, huh, Delaney? Yeah, no, I hadn't realized that that was on the docket there. I'm glad you grabbed that. I really hadn't known that at all. And I think it's pretty cool that it's a farmer financed port. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know what, what that means exactly. Like did a co-op found it? It said it didn't say the the name of the cooperative, but it did say a forty seven hundred member cooperative based in Fort Dodge. So I might have to do a little okay. bit of digging to see if we can get some answers there. Yeah, there's not too many co ops around that area, so I'm sure we can process of eliminate. Well, Ashton, speaking of ports, I know this is a story that you started to cover earlier this week, if maybe not last week. My timeline, like I said, is all mixed up here. But talking about a Chinese port, the Yantian, again, not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, International Containers Terminal. You mentioned a few days ago or yesterday that that it was having a lot of major delays in that port, which is a big ag port. Well, we've got a little bit of a timeline here to when things are anticipated to maybe kind of get back to normal. And folks are saying that there are measures being implemented to try and help with some of this increased 
congestion and vessel delays. And it's expected to go on here for upwards of 14 days. So they're thinking here for about another two weeks, we can expect to see congestion there going on in that port for China. Post that, though, they didn't give us much of an outlook. So we'll continue to watch that story and see how things shake out here. Well, Delaney, I have a bit of an update talking about the cyber cyber attack uh, concerning JBS. As David Scott, who is the chairman of the House Ag Committee, says that they must find out if the Russian government was involved in this cyber attack against the meat supplier. Scott says that he'll be working closely with USDA partners and President Biden to find out who was responsible for the attacks on one of the nation's largest meat processors and other critical infrastructure providers. Scott says a, quote, secure and resilient food and ag supply chain is critical to the nation's welfare and national security. And I don't know if you and Dawson talked about this, Delaney, but I don't know why they're pointing the finger at Russia right now. Do you have any inkling? Yeah, uh, we did talk about this and I'm with you. I don't really know for sure what the reasoning was behind stating that it was Russia. I, I feel like it's just kind of a scapegoat. I feel like whenever anything Maybe, yeah. happens, they always point the finger to Russia. But I mean, who knows? I'm really curious to find out who is behind the cyber attack as well. So hopefully Scott, along with those other agencies, finds out here pretty soon. Absolutely. And let's see. I actually want to chat here back to talking import exports here for just one moment taking it back to China, uh, they're expected to continue their robust imports of wheat here throughout this current marketing year that began in as of June 1. They're citing very strong demand for animal feed as they're going to continue to use that as a substitute for corn. This came out from the National China excuse me, the China National Grain and Oils Information Center as of today in a Friday report. And imports for the 21-22 marketing year are seen at expected to be about 8 million tons, second highest ever, second highest ever level that we've seen here, but could get upwards of 10 million to 12 million tons. So they're expecting to import quite a bit of wheat here in place of corn as we do continue to see corn being an expensive commodity for them to use and feed out there to their growing livestock herd. You know, Delaney, kind of in that same vein here, David McLennan, who was the chief executive of Cargill, said earlier today that China's feed grain industry is unlikely to become self-sufficient despite the country's efforts to ramp up domestic production. Of course, tightening domestic supplies of feed grains and soaring demand from China's pork producers has triggered record feed grain import purchases this year. The surge in import demand has come despite directives by Beijing to boost domestic grain output and reformulate pig and poultry feed rations to reduce reliance on imported corn and soy. But I think they're going to have to kind of rely on imports. And McLennan says kind of the same thing. He said that they're going to need to depend on trade and they just don't have it the way that the U.S., Brazil, and Australia do when it comes to those grains. So it sounds like they're going to really just have to rely on imports for now. And when they do eventually become self-sufficient, I, I don't know when that timeline will be. Yeah, it's a... Uh, 
I mean, they were, they were thinking June, you know, of this year to be self-sufficient, I guess, maybe not so much on the, uh, food feed source side, but their, their hog production was supposed to be self-sufficient. They weren't supposed to be, you know, importing a lot of pork and they still are. So their timeline's much different, I think, in their heads than what it is in reality. You know, I can't blame them. I'd probably want to be a little optimistic and trying to get back up on my feet if I was a producer in China. But I mean, it sounds like they've got quite a ways to go. And they they certainly do. I would agree with that. Ashton, I have just one other quick piece of news here. Not really a super timely piece of news, more just longer story here. But that's looking at land values and land trends because, you know, as we continue to see commodity prices stay at these elevated levels, we're seeing land prices follow suit. Uh, I was reading an interesting article here on DTN's website looking at different trends going on right now in the land industry. And one of the folks that was interviewed and quoted in this article was the president of Hertz Real Estate Services. They've said that they've had seven auctions here in the past month and Farmland is going with no surprise at a record level. They're seeing a lot of demand for farms and high quality property properties. And there's a lot of money right now that seems to be flowing through ag, the ag industry. Again, no surprise due to commodity prices, but buying interest really has started to pick up here. Uh, middle to end of 2020 and farmland sale prices are up about five to 15% here in just the first six months of 2021 alone. So we are continuing to see the industry push forward. Land prices are continuing to rise and farmers are willing to pay for those investments. But if you're looking to start a farm or get into farming, expanding your farm, you're going to have to be ready to pay a little bit more for that ground overall. Well, Delaney, it's been a pretty slow news day and honestly kind of a boring one, to be honest. So I'm excited to see if the markets had any excitement. They absolutely did today. Ashton on this Friday afternoon, they had a lot of green all across green here in the green markets and a Livestock were mixed today, but we saw some big moves to the upside here in corn and soybeans and wheat. So let's dive in here and take a look. We're not back to uh, fresh highs yet, but we are chugging right along here. July corn closed up 19 cents today to close at 681. The D's up 24 cents to close at 590 and a half. Soybeans had big moves today as the July contract added 33 and a quarter cent to close at 1549 and a quarter. Again, not fresh contract highs here as well, but we are trending back into that uh, higher range. November up 30 and a quarter cents today to close at 14.33 and three quarters. And then the wheat pit July today up eight and three quarters cents to close at 6.85. The September up 11 and three quarters cents to close at 6.92 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, as I mentioned, a little bit of mixed trade today as cattle were mostly lower, lean hogs higher. 
the August contract today, live cattle contract today, shed 45 cents to close at 118.07 and a half. The October down 60 cents to close at 124.05. And in feeder cattle today, the August contract down $3.02 and two cents to close at 149.92 and a half. The September down 275 to close at 152.75. Lean hogs higher today with a July contract adding $1.60 to close at 120.60. The August up 57 and a half cents to close at 117.57 and a half. And wrapping things out here with the class three dairy milk futures. July up seven cents today to close at 1792. The August up four pennies to close at 1844. Ashton, without further ado, kick it off for today's 30 under 30 interview. Well, for this week's 30 under 30 conversation, we're talking to Anna Glenn, who is an agriculture instructor for the Liberian International Christian College. And she has a couple of other titles under her belt as well, but I'll let her do the explaining there. But Anna, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. So Anna, like I mentioned there, I mean, you have a couple of different titles. You're the an agriculture instructor, the acting department chair for the Liberian International Christian College, and then you're also working with Hope in the Harvest Missions International. So why don't you just explain a little bit about what your day-to-day typically looks like? Yeah, so I um, am working through Hope in the Harvest Missions International, which is an American NGO partnering with a um, Liberian institution here on the ground, LICC, Liberia International Christian College. And we work together to help implement the agriculture department here at the the college. So before um, the partnership, the college was here. It's in a very rural area of Liberia. um, And they were offering degrees in business, education, and theology, but we came along to help implement the agriculture curriculum. So I've been working on helping to develop the curriculum, um, teacher trainings, implementing courses, um, helping to organize and manage some things on the demonstration farm here. We have about 100 students in the bachelor's degree program. um, And I love getting to work with them and teach them every day. And then we also have farmers in the surrounding community, usually over a thousand people that can come and visit the farm for trainings throughout the year. So I work a lot on those trainings as well. Anna, I think it's really interesting that you're working on these things over in Liberia. How did you get to where you're at now? What does your background look like? Yeah, so I grew up on a like small family farm in Maryland, um, doing 4-H and all kinds of things with dairy goats, poultry, rabbits, vegetables. Um, I studied agriculture at University of Maryland and then international agriculture development at Texas A&M. Uh, worked as an extension agent for a little while um, while my husband was working as an agriculture instructor at a high school. And um, we always had a passion to go abroad and use our agriculture degrees abroad. Both of us um, come from a faith background as well. So that was important to us. And we we had traveled a little bit before and seen how um, Many people around the world um, are struggling with how to develop more sustainable and more productive means of agriculture. And so that was a passion that was laid on our hearts. And that's how we ended up um, in Liberia through an organization called AgriCorps is the organization we originally came over with. Um, They hire, you know, usually just recently graduated bachelor's degree students um, from the agriculture programs, and they send them abroad for a year to teach in high schools. Uh, in developing countries. So we got sent to Liberia, which is how we ended up here. 
we met the Hope and the Harvest people, and then we got uh, connected with them ever since. That's really a fascinating journey there. And I've, I've just got to say, I'm a, a Texas Tech grad. So, I mean, we've got some some beef in between us right oh, now. Yeah. But uh, aside from that tension, <laughs> and uh, I think it's, you know, pretty interesting how you're working with those folks in Liberia, because I imagine that the way that they farm and, you know, the tools that they have in their toolkits is pretty different from how we farm here in the U.S. or how the majority of producers here in the U.S. actually grow and produce. So how are you able to kind of adjust to, you know, helping them with those methods? Was there quite a bit of a learning curve there? It was a huge learning curve um, for me and my husband because, you know, we came from the agriculture that was in Maryland. And so that is nothing like the tropical agriculture that we have here for one. And then, of course, you touched on the aspect of mechanization and the different types of um, products that we're growing over here. So many farmers here um, typically have less than an acre or so, and they're subsistence farmers. They're really trying to grow what they can for their families on the land here. You know, in the U.S., I think it's less than 1% of the population is involved in agriculture. But here, it's about 70-80% of people are involved in agriculture. So it's very small-scale farming it's all done um, with hand tools, a hoe or a cutlass, you know, a machete. And so we're trying to incorporate not necessarily mechanization because you have to use appropriate tools and technology for where you are. But we are especially trying to work with farmers on sustainable agricultural practices and um, fitting that into how does that fit into our role as stewards um, of the environment and stewards of creation. So we do a lot of things like. Um, no-till, we can, you know, incorporate those aspects here. We can incorporate composting. We can incorporate mulching, um, not burning the land, which is a very common practice here. How to incorporate more organic matter into the soil. So these are all um, things that farmers are doing in the U.S., but we're just doing it in, you know, a different way. These sustainable agriculture practices, precision agriculture that's practiced in the U.S., um, you know, with tractors and equipment and all those sorts of things, we are doing it just by making sure that when we plant a seed here, we dig a hole and we only put our inputs into the hole. We don't spread it throughout the whole field so that it's not, you know, wasted when the, the torrential rains come in the rainy season. So we're practicing a lot of the same, same concepts, but different way of implementing them. I think you make a really great point there that these are all the same concepts, just different ways of really doing them. And I think that it's really fascinating that the world of agriculture is so broad, but there's so many different ways to really get the job done. But but Anna, do you see yourself ever coming back to the U.S. or is Liberia really where you're going to set up roots? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer um, because to be honest, Liberia has become like home for us um, in many ways because we've been here for five years now. And my students here, um, my fellow teachers, the farmers, you know, our community at church here, they have become a family to me, just like my family back home in the U.S. So that's something that my husband and I talk about daily. But for now, we really love the work that we're doing here. We love getting to work at the university and um, with the farmers here because they are so passionate about wanting to work towards a better Liberia. Right now, they're importing something like 70, 80 percent of their food here in Liberia. And farmers really do want to be producing it here. And so, you know, it's exciting to work with people who are excited about what they're doing. So 
<laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean to hit, hit you with a hard question there. I apologize. Yeah. For that. But I mean, it sounds like you're extremely passionate as well. It's always great to hear from people who are excited about working in the industry and looking for ways to improve, you know, every day that they're working in the field or, you know, anything like that. But Anna, for those who are interested in doing something similar once they graduate or are looking to doing something similar here in the future, what are some words of encouragement or advice that you might have for them? Yeah. Um, if you are wanting to do international agriculture, which I think, um, you know, it opens up so many doors for you, so many experiences. One thing that I would say to anybody wanting to go down that route is more than any of the technical things that you've learned, agricultural science, animal science, whatever it may be. Um, the thing that has helped us here a lot is learning how to be flexible in an environment that is very different than the one that you grew up in. It's a constant um, you know, struggle each day because things definitely don't go as smoothly over here as they would in the US. I mean, for example, if I need to print something, that means the printer has to be working. If it's not working, I have to check around to another printer. That means we have to have electricity. That means we have to have ink in the printer. There's just all kinds of challenges every day um, that get thrown at you. And so in order to really you know, be be settled into your work. If you're going to work in international agriculture, you definitely have to learn to be flexible and you have to learn to prioritize relationships um, above all else. Because if I'm trying to prioritize productivity every single day, it's going to be a frustration for me, for my students and for everything. And this culture here, especially in Liberia, values relationships a lot. And so by investing in those relationships, that's actually how we can have a longer lasting impact and change when it comes to to those technical agricultural things. Well, Anna, it's been really great to get to know your story and hear a little bit more about international agriculture. Thank you once again for coming on today and good luck with your future endeavors over there in Liberia. Thank you. Thanks again there to Anna for coming on and chatting with us. I mean, she joined all the way from Liberia. So I thought it was very interesting to talk to her. I think she was one of the first international folks that we talked to for our 30 under 30 segment. That is probably correct, Ashton. That, yeah. Interesting stuff, though. Very interesting. I think international agriculture, like I talked about with Anna, is something that I don't think we talk enough about. I mean, of course, we talk about Brazil and our relationship with China and things of that nature, but really the the mechanisms and how different producers are able to grow and produce, I think, is very interesting. But we are always having interesting conversations here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. And next week is definitely going to be an interesting one for sure, as we will be live from World Pork Expo in Des Moines, Iowa. So you'll have to tune in at agnewsdaily.com to hear some of those episodes and follow along on our journey to Des Moines. Well, it's my journey. Delaney, it's just your your backyard. That's true. Sorry. (laughs) Folks can follow along with that on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.